digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where you talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride is Will the Thrill. Ooh, that was oh, a good that, one. That really sounded good. I know, that was like a hand effect there, no pun intended. <laughs> well, bottled you, effect. You might realize by this point that our audio is much better than it's been, but that I also left somebody out of the introduction. Mm, and who might that be? We left out TJ too. Not intentionally. Not intentionally. We tried our best to get him on this episode. A couple things about this episode. I think this episode is cursed. Uh, Everyone's got one and this is ours. <laughs> yeah. We actually recorded this originally Monday night. And I went on my computer to edit it on Tuesday. And somehow it was gone. We spent. It is I'm, a mystery. I'm not even joking. We spent four hours recording this episode. Oh, it was so good, and then it just disappeared. So we tried to schedule our my brother to hop in on a Zoom call, like we've been recording the episodes tonight. And his phone not only died, but also their internet went completely out. Yeah, they so lost everything. They've lost everything, and uh, unfortunately, he will not be joining us for this episode which is a shame because i know this is one that he really is passionate about yeah well he already heard it so <laughs> well, he's already part of it it's just uh fortunately or unfortunately the evidence will always remain in mystery yeah sorry about that guys it's it's lost to the world it's like my best friend's birthday with quentin tarantino yeah gone we'll never know the day the clown cried but i think this is our chance to cover a very important artist yes. and also address some of the things we brought up in the last recording some unfortunate events in the last week. Yeah. First of all, we lost Sean Connery and we lost Alex Trebek. <sighs> it's just 2020 sucks out loud. But yeah. something that didn't totally suck was that we got a letter yes. from a listener and we want to give her an awesome shout out for being an amazing human being. Her name is Penelope, Penelope from Raleigh, North Carolina. Thank you so much for your email. And that's the thing, guys. Email us. Interact with us. We love this stuff. Please send us emails. Talk to us. Argue with us. We, we, we will drink it in. We want to have a conversation. We really want this to be like an interactive thing with you guys. And I know when we originally recorded this, my brother expressed that in a really good way. And that's kind of a bummer that we, we lost that. But please... Uh, Penelope, your letter meant the world to us. It meant the world to Travis. Thank you so much for the birthday shout out. You know, we love when you guys reach out to us. So, you know, this one is for you, Penelope. And it is interesting that in the letter, Penelope, that you wrote, you requested this artist, the late, great Neil Peart. And we were in the process of researching Neil. And there is a lot there. I personally There's so much. revisited all 19 Studio Rush albums in preparation of this episode. I was not a part of that. In, in, in um, under a week, I believe. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a big catalog. <sighs> it sure is. And it's just, again, thank you, Penelope, for the shout out. And this episode is for you. And we hope you really enjoy it. So we're going to jump into this right now, yes? Absolutely. And of course, when you bring up... 
the great Neil Peart, known by many names. He is, of course, synonymous with the band Rush. And I know that Rush provokes a rather visceral a rather visceral reaction. See, I'm not the only one that <laughs> no, does words bad. <laughs> it's a hard word to say. Um, Rush provokes a very visceral reaction. I know that TJ and I are big fans. And LD, I know that this is not something you've explored a great deal of. You know what? I, I can I get that they are extremely talented. I understand that. I get that they are one of the oh, most absolutely. recognizable people in Canada. They probably don't pay for a meal or a drink anywhere in Canada. I confirmed that with a Canadian. Details to follow. <laughs> but, you know, it's just not my bag of tea. And that's fair. I, I but, but don't get me wrong. I respect them. But again, it wasn't something that I really glommed onto. And I genuinely don't feel bad because I do remember, we will get to it, <laughs> but apparently Rush fans don't skew in my gender, so I don't feel completely left out in the cold. Yes, in fact, it did become a running joke for the band and their fan base over many years. Uh, and I think that uh, you know your reaction is valid, and I find that when the band Rush comes up, you usually get one of three responses, and LD yours is one pretty much to a T. One of them is, I, I'm paraphrasing, of course, what you said, but I think it's pretty much on the nose there, and that is, I think they're very talented, but I don't care for their music. And I mean, I think yeah. that's, I think that's fair. It's, I okay, I, I look at it the way I look at Prince. That's a very, you know, th that's one where there's a rabid fan base. Oh, completely. And I, I respect Prince for his contribution to music. He is an incredible artist. I will never downplay that. He is a guitar god, mm -hmm. and he did so much for his community. He loved his hometown, but it just wasn't my my bag of tea. That That's fair. And that's usually one of the reactions that people have. And I hope people don't hate me for that, because yeah. I that, that's the thing. I do respect them, and I know that they are extremely popular. Well, that's, I think, where the other two reactions come in. The second one is more along the lines of, oh, Rush, I really like... And they'll name one of about four or five songs that everybody knows and likes. Again, nothing wrong with that. Rush, despite their sort of counterculture approach, did have commercial viability. And then the third is, of course, the guy who has the Counterparts t-shirt and looks something like the comic book guy from The Simpsons who yells, Rush is awesome! <laughs> and then he will go into a long conversation about how the 1975 Caress of Steel album is highly misunderstood and overlooked. So th those are your three choices when it comes to I, Rush. You know, I'm the same when it comes to Queen. I will be in the Day of the Races shirt, and I will yell out how <laughs> Love Me Like there no, There's No Tomorrow is a fantastic song. Innuendo is a gem. It, it, it actually wasn't. I don't, <laughs> I don't actually like that song. At the end of the day, I think the what your opinion about Rush is secondary to the fact that you have one. These guys were known the world over. Now, TJ put it as Rush doesn't really know a middle ground when it comes to fan base. Well, also, you don't really have people that are like, who's Rush? Exactly. You've heard of them in you've, some way, shape, or form. You've heard of them. They are they are very ingrained in the zeitgeist. And they have one of the considered to be greatest rock songs of all time in their catalog. Which is? Oh, we'll get to it. Okay. We're, we're going to get there. So like you said, it's not a, hey, who are these guys? You know, these three guys from Canada, never heard of them. So I'm going to throw a few numbers at you that may give cadence to this fact. So everyone knows about the popularity of Canadian artists. Many have transcended Celine Dion. Um, 
Michael Bublé. Justin Bieber. Uh, Bieber is, yes. Alanis Morissette, Brian Adams. Brian Adams, yeah. Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Michael he's, J. Not, Fox. he's not a singer, but he is from Canada. And then one of the best Canadian exports, Alex Trebek. And that is where we come full circle to the late <laughs> Alex Trebek, which you may have heard the crack of a fresh beer. I am, in honor of our neighbors to the Great White North, consuming a Labatt's this evening with the clean waters of the Canadian mountains. No one cares what I'm drinking. Mm-hmm. It's it's sweet tea. Well, we try to be thematic. You're just consistent. <laughs> we need that on a t-shirt. I know. <laughs> so the nation of Canada has just under 38 million people, which is only a shade more than the entire population of California. Holy cow. And, and if you think about how big that country is, that's kind of scary. Can we move to Canada? I know, right? I'm sure a lot of people are contemplating that. <laughs> and these three members of Rush are recognized the world over, and many of them credit the, to be part of the, quote, Canadian invasion. You know, there was the British invasion, yeah. and then we had the Canadian invasion, which was a lot friendlier with different beer and <laughs> and, and, and smooth whiskey. There's less screaming and more maple syrup. I'm just going to throw out the worst (laughs) stereotypes of Canada. eh? They love their hockey, eh? And there it is. We apologize (laughs) to all 38 million people who live in Canada. Look, someone's got to pick up the slack of really crappy impressions. Yeah, that is TJ's wheelhouse. We just got to keep it in the bloodline. Exactly. (laughs) But here are some numbers here. So the band was together for over 40 years, which alone is impressive. I mean, there's only a handful of bands who have had that kind of tenure. They released, as I mentioned earlier, 19 studio albums, which spanned from 1974 to 2012. However, if you start looking at the EPs, the live albums, the compilations, the DVDs, you've got well close to 50 offerings of Rush music in some way, shape, or form. They have sold worldwide, get this, over 44 million albums. That's that's a lot. Especially in our digital age. Uh-huh. That's a lot. Which is even more impressive by the fact that those albums include 24 gold records. Wow. 14 platinum records. And three multi-platinum records. And wait, it took them until what year to get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I do have it. It's it's they were eligible, I think, in nineteen ninety eight. I think they were eligible, but they don't get in for several years later. I, I do have that date and I'm gonna get to it. Okay. But that status, again, the twenty four gold, fourteen platinum, three multi, puts them in a class with only four other rock bands, and they are Aerosmith, Kiss, the Rolling Stones, and the Beatles. What? Yeah, which is, again, staggering. Uh, I've seen different polls that say Rush is actually third on the list behind the Stones and the Beatles. So that's impressive. You know what, though? I can actually see that. It's crazy to think that they achieve these milestones, but it's even crazier to think that Rush almost wasn't Rush. The whole thing almost never happened. They had a series of lineup changes very early on, and the band that we know is Rush came out of something completely different. And that was really due to our subject today, our hero, if you will, because he was really the one who brought the drumming style, but he was also the primary lyricist, which is, again, a rarity in music. He wrote most of the lyrics you hear when you hear a Rush song, and as a result, they really became one of the greatest prog rock bands, progressive rock bands, of all time. And that is, of course, the man that they called the drummer's drummer, Bubba 
or by my favorite nickname, The Professor. Uh, that's a great nickname. It really is. <laughs> and that man is Cornelius Elwood Peart. Whoa, 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 whoa. He's got the same name as the chicken on the cornflakes <laughs> box. He does, Cornelius, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the greatest thing. <laughs> Born September 12th, 1952. Virgo! There you go. Neil Elwood Peart was the first son of Betty and Glenn Peart, and the Peart's worked in the farm equipment industry. They had a place on the outskirts of Hamilton, Ontario. The exact town is called Hagersville. It's considered a, you know, on the outskirts of Ontario. They moved, however, when Neil was very young to St. Catharines, which used to be Port Dallacy, and it changed to St. Catharines, which is a little bit closer to Niagara Falls, for those of you who know your Canadian geography. The Peart's managed a farm equipment store. And like I said, Neil was one of a total of four children. He was the eldest. His siblings were Danny, Judy, and Nancy. I don't think this will shock anyone when you know about Neil and sort of his presence and demeanor or the way he shunned the spotlight, but Neil was a reserved and quiet child. At a very early age, he was quite introverted, and he actually enjoyed stories. He liked to read. He wasn't really much for sports, and when he talked about his inability to skate, he described it as a death sentence. Now, this was something, hearkening back to LD, which you had asked me earlier, uh, there was an evening I went out with some co-workers, and one of them had a boyfriend who was from Canada at the time, and we had a couple beers and started talking, and I had to ask him two questions that I'm sure Canadians are sick of answering, but they continue to be the politest people on the planet, so I'm sure he indulged me. I asked him what was the opinion of the average person in Canada about Rush, and then I asked him about the prevalence of hockey. So the first one he answered, again, LD, what you said, they don't pay for a drink in Canada. They pretty much are de facto royalty. Wait, you met with a Canadian and you didn't tell me? <laughs> oh, man, I have so many questions. So, again, Rush is... I want, I want to know if they have an ongoing battle with Vermont. Canon and Vermont? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, are the they epic war. I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, that did not come up in my research, interestingly enough. Uh, however, yes, Rush, very well thought of in Canada. In fact, as we go into their lifetime awards, I will uncover that a bit further because they were bestowed the highest honor that a civilian can get in the nation of Canada. The band was that all three of them were given it. So a very extreme honor by the government of Canada. And I framed my question in this way to this, this gentleman. And I said, you know, in the U.S. we have a lot of popular sports, basketball, football, baseball. In every other country in the world, though, it's soccer. Soccer is the sport, with the exception of Canada. Hockey is the sport in Canada. And, and so, was that like in question? No, no, no. My question was sort of what does hockey mean? Like, why do people revere it so much? And his answer was very interesting. And he said that it was the way out. If you grew up in a blue collar household in Canada, you had two choices. You were going to the fields or you were going to the mines. That was it. <laughs> that reminds me of, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but that reminds me of uh, the, the movie <laughs> Drop Dead Gorgeous. Oh, yeah? Where she says, oh, yeah, you know, there's two, there's two ways out of this town, hockey or prison. Uh, pretty much. I mean, he didn't really say that, but I can imagine. If you haven't seen that movie, please, please watch it. It is awesome. <laughs> but to back that up, it is a great film, by the way. It is. Hockey is the way out. And he said to me, if you know you want to make it big and go to university and be, you know, again, transcend that lifestyle, 
you got to play hockey. So that's why people take it so seriously and why someone like Neil, who can't skate and he's not very you know good at the sports, he kind of felt like he was at a loss at a very young age. However, he does say that his home life was happy. He listened to music a lot, no shock. Some of his biggest influences were Ginger Baker, a great drummer who we have yet to cover, I believe. Yep. The topic of our last episode, John Bonzo Bonham. Yep. And the topic of our upcoming episode, Mr. Keith Moon. Keith Moon. So you got your your triumvirate right there. Oh, that's a good, that's a 10 cent word. Ooh, I get 10 whole cents. Yeah. (laughs) Neil said in an interview, I used to lay in bed at night with it, the radio, turned down low and pressed to my ear. I tuned into pop stations in Toronto, Hamilton, Welland, or even Buffalo, New York. I still remember the first song that galvanized me. Chains, a simple pop tune by one of the girl groups with close harmonies syncopated over a driving shuffle. And so Neil was just absorbing music. He actually listened to a lot of Jimi Hendrix, another topic we've covered, Mm -hmm. which, again, thank you, Penelope, for your feedback on that one. Cream, Yes, Traffic, and Jefferson Airplane. So already you can hear kind of this alternative rock sound creeping in. To Wait, that was that was cream, comma, yes, comma. Correct. Okay. Traffic, Jefferson Airplane. So really he was focused on music, so his parents said, oh great, we'll get you piano lessons. Well, Neil didn't really care about piano, so he didn't stick with it. The turning point was when he saw a movie about Gene Krupa. Again, arguably one of the greatest drummers of all time, and I think when it comes to influences... Most drummers can go back to either Gene Krupa or Buddy Rich. That's my theory. Yeah. It's one of those two. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, he sees this and says, I want to be a drummer. So he picks up whatever he can around the house, chopsticks, and just starts drumming on things all over the place. And his parents, being the patient and accommodating individuals that they are, get him a practice drum and some sticks. And they say, if you keep this up for a year, we will buy you a drum kit. Mm. And so Neil gets a drum kit at age 14. He studies at the Peninsula Conservatory of Music. So he's studying there, and he studied there on the weekends. He attended school, and he also worked at his parents' store. He did pick up gigs as a drummer, and, you know, wherever he could. And his father said that uh, Neil had one burning passion, and that was to be a drummer. By 1967, Neil joined a local trio trio called The Eternal Triangle. Nope. Yeah, bad that bad is name. a terrible name. But it's interesting how this band and the next band he joins are directly correlated to Rush. Uh, I know, but that, that it's horrible. That, yeah, that is the wor- That is one of the worst names. I can categorically say mm-hmm. we have been going at this for almost two years, and, and that yet. is maybe one of the worst names I've ever heard. <laughs> Sorry to the Eternal Triangle. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think they're relevant anymore. Of course, Neil went on to be who he was. Yeah. But it, they were, however, credited with giving Neil his first public drum solo. So he was 15 years old. And they were playing out at, you know, dances and Knights of Columbus halls and all this stuff. Just wherever they could play. And it was at that point that Neil performed his first drum solo. Which, those of you who know the work of Mr. Peart uh, will know his solos are really second to none. Virtually all of the musicians Neil liked were British. Again, this is the British invasion primarily, isn't it? 19... late 60s, early 70s? Yeah. You're moving out of it. Getting away from I think it? Because I think it started at around 1964, 65. But that's when he was listening really? to the music. Yeah. So we're, we, we're coming out of it because we're moving more into like Tina Turner, James Brown, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So Neil got a little frustrated with his fellow musicians because he felt none of them took it seriously enough. 
And I love, I'm going to let you say the quote about his skill, because uh, I think okay. it's so good. Again, Neil Peart is so quotable. We could just do an episode quoting him, and it would be fantastic. Yeah, my favorite, I, uh, you know, because when, when we do our research, we pull from different stuff. So I'm a book person, mainly. Uh, Will and TJ, I think, watch a lot of documentaries and stuff. So our YouTube algorithm starts <laughs> pulling stuff up based on Rush. And I saw a quote from Neil, which said, I wasn't talented. I was relentless. And I felt that. It's a really good one. And part of this pursuit, Neil was convinced he had to go to England. So he tells his parents, this is, he's about 18 at this point, and he says, I want to go to England. And again, his parents just sound like the sweetest people in the world. They say, okay, you work with us for the summer, you save your money for the trip, and we will match whatever you save. And so... I mean, that's it, that's so awesome when you have parents that back you like that. Yeah, they still It, it just really does sound like he had like a happy life. Yeah, by all accounts. So, and, and not just that, but that he kept up his end of the bargain. Oh, he worked for it. It wasn't yeah. just like a gimme. It was he actually put the work in. He kept it up for a year. They got him a drum kit. He wants to go to England. He works for the summer and saves his money. Like what what 16-year-old does that? Yeah, his focus is unbelievable at this point. It's incredible. It's 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 really commendable to be honest. Oh yeah, and it does take him across the Atlantic in the fall of 1970. He packs up his things. In fact, he and his father together built a wooden crate to put his drum equipment in to get on the plane. That is so sweet. So in Neil's words, he went seeking fame and fortune and found anonymity and poverty. Needless to say, Neil was having a hard time. He found some gigs. He got some studio work, but he wasn't making it as a musician. He actually got a, quote, day job in a store, which is appropriate because he was shelving items and doing inventory like at the farm equipment store. And he sold trinkets at a place called The Great Frog, which is a wonderful name. That is a great name. I don't Unlike know if it's there or not. The Eternal Triangle. <laughs> the Eternal Triangle. By 1973, Betty and Glenn actually go to see Neil in London, and their first look at him, they know something's up. He doesn't look right. Most of it's because he's broke, and he's depressed. Betty, his mother, thought he was homesick and should probably come back to Canada. So his father, they sit him down, and he says, listen, you know, you can come back to Canada, and you can work as a manager in the parts store. Basically, I'll, I'll have a job for you. You can come home. No, no harm, no foul. This time, however, wasn't a total loss, because during this time, Neil was reading a lot. He was exposed to the works of Ayn Rand, Tolkien, and he was actually learning from other drummers on the scene, which included the great Stuart Copeland of the police. Yeah. There you go. So Neil takes the offer, kind of files in the back of his head, and then just after New Year's in 1974, again, this is a couple days into the new year, Neil sends a note to his parents, and the only words are, Dad... I'm coming home. Mm. And this was largely because Neil was pretty much giving up. He didn't see himself as being a full-time drummer. If, if only he knew, right? So he goes home. He doesn't give up the drums. He continues to play. He actually joins a band called Hush. So, I mean, it's, it's better than Eternal Triangle. <laughs> you've got the, the power trio, and then you've got Hush, and you combine those, and you get Rush. So we're mm. just a couple years away from that. He works in the parts store, as promised, and he's playing out in bands in Ontario, clubs and whatnot. And during one of these shows, one of Neil's acquaintances hears him and actually goes to make a phone call to the city of Toronto, where, of course, Rush is in existence. So I'm going to back it up a couple years because Rush was formed in 1968. 
and it was the brainchild of the guitarist, well-known guitarist of Rush, Alex Lifeson. At that time, the lineup was Alex Lifeson, Jeff Jones, who was the bass player and singer, and a drummer named John Rutsey. Wait, we're missing two people. No, there's three total. But where's Getty? Oh, Getty's coming. So first, a uh, quick note about Alex here. Alex, is, Alex Lifeson is actually not his given name. His given name is Alexander Zivajnovic. You studied that, didn't you? I worked really hard on this, and I'm sorry <laughs> if I mispronounced it. Uh, he was born in British Columbia in August of 1953, and then they moved across the country to Toronto. Some interesting things about Alex, aside from being what TJ describes as a criminally underrated guitar player, I think the argument could be made that he should be in the top 15 of all time. He's incredible. That's fair. He's a well-known guitarist. He's also into golf and painting, both for charity. You can see his works online. He does have his paintings. If you want to buy one, all of the proceeds go to the Kidney Foundation. That is awesome. Yeah. He just seems like a good guy. Plus, he actually married his high school sweetheart. We'll get to that a little bit later. And as you pointed out, Getty is kind of waiting in the wings here, which means something very interesting. You'll notice in that lineup, there's only one original member, and that's Alex Lifeson. Right. So when does Getty come in? Well, shortly after Rush is formed in 1968, they kicked, they kicked Jeff Jones out. And so they need a rare combination of someone who can play the bass and who can sing. Voila, Getty Lee. And I will explain to you how I know who Getty Lee was, not oh, knowing Rush very well. But you knew him. I, okay, I didn't know. There's context. Okay. So there is a movie that came out in like 1997, I think, called Orgasmo, which was the guys that <laughs> created South Park. And that's a line in the movie where they're like, all right, everybody say Getty Lee. And they're like, who's Getty Lee? And they go, he's the singer for Rush. <laughs> And that's how so I got the inter- <laughs> that's how I got the introduction to Rush. And there you so, go. Thank you, Matt, Matt and Trey. <laughs> well, Getty is also an equally interesting guy. He was born Gary Lee Weinrib, and apparently the nickname Getty, as TJ pointed out in the lost episode, came because the way his mother pronounced it was Getty, Getty, Getty. So it just kind of adopted the double D instead of the R. Huh. Getty Lee was born on July 29th, 1953 in Ontario. He's actually the son of two Holocaust survivors who escaped and made it to Canada. Really? Oh, yeah. How? How? Where, where were they? Oh, I don't know the whole story, and that's something I do want to go back to. I know they did. They were survivors. They did go there, and Getty was a big fan of the principles of the Jewish faith, but he wasn't a big organized religious person. Got it. So he liked a lot of the ideas and the mysticism, and he was a very spiritual person, but he did not stay with the Jewish faith. Yeah. Uh, he was actually a schoolmate of Alex Lifeson, and he was brought into Rush because, well, they lost someone who can play bass and sing, and Alex was like, I know a guy, so in comes Getty. Getty Lee, interestingly enough, loves baseball. Loves baseball. I mean, they have their own, Toronto has their own baseball team, so uh, they do. I mean, that makes sense. But here's the thing, they weren't in existence when Getty was growing up, so he oh, actually right. followed the, the Detroit Tigers... And then the Blue Jays came around in 1977. That's oh, when he, okay. he became a Blue Jays fan. It was apparently at all the games. You know, he was well known to be there. He's also a collector of bases, not a shock as a bass player, but he goes the extra mile. He actually studies the history of the base 
and believes strongly that his instrument never got its due, so he plans to open a museum in Canada dedicated to bass players, the craft, and the instruments, which I thought was quite interesting. Nice. He actually wrote a book, too. And he loves wine. Getty Lee is a wine collector and enthusiast and boasts a cellar with over 5,000 bottles. That's impressive. Oh, yeah. So jumping back to 1974, the Rush lineup is, at this moment, Alex Lifeson, Getty Lee, and drummer John Rutsey. They put together a record label to get their album out, so I think that's a little resourceful. That album is called Moon Records, and the album, which was self-titled, was released in 1974 in Canada, and it actually breaks through to the U.S. in kind of a funny way. So the album is making the rounds, and it winds up in the hands of a DJ. Her name is Donna Halper, and she worked for Cleveland's WMMS radio station. So she's given this along with a stack of things to play, and it's sort of a, hey, play it when you get to it. And she pays no attention. She's like, okay, Rush, Canadian rock band, whatever. However, the reason Donna played the song is because she needed what is known in the DJ world as a bathroom song. This was something that my brother knows all too well. He was a DJ for years, right? Yes. So I'll explain to those who may not be as familiar. It's supposed to cover the DJ's trip to the bathroom. So you need a song with some length, with which Rush is known for. So she's looking at this disc, again, self-titled Rush album, and one track stands out, which is Working Man, clocking in at seven minutes and nine seconds. That is a really good bathroom song. Like you have to have plenty like, of time. You have to have that Stairway to Heaven, Bohemian mm-hmm. Rhapsody, Free Bird, like. And if you if you're lucky, you can stack them. If you really need to go bad. Yes. So she says, "Great, seven minutes, nine seconds, perfect time for me to use the restroom." Pops the disc in and doesn't leave. In her words, <laughs> so she just never made it to the bathroom. Not on that trip. Maybe another song came <laughs> later. But when that song came on. She basically said, forget the bathroom. This is really good. (laughs) And she is largely credited as, quote, discovering Rush. That's awesome. In the States. So they broke through the Great White Wall. So Working Man is a great track, and it's one I think most people know, and that's why I actually opted for a different track. So for our first song, I'm going to offer you the opening track on the self-titled Rush album from 1974. You're going to hear a lot of influences there, and I think it makes a lot of sense when you hear what comes later with Rush. So here it is, the opening track, which after listening to all the studio albums, I realized that in most cases, the opening track is one of the best songs. Fair. They knew how to open an album. So here is, from the eponymous Rush album, 1974, the opening track, Finding My Way. Oh! 
Yeah, and that is, as you pointed out during the song, without Neil Peart. Yeah. So, yeah. not really Rush. So, why did you play that for me? Well, I think it's important to see where they started, because this is the album that broke them out. Which, oh, speaking of, Donna, again, was credited as finding the band. 
and it's probably good to know that they maintained a very close relationship with her throughout the years. Whenever they had a show, Rush would leave a, tickets for her and a backstage pass in her name. And see, I love stories like that. I mm-hmm. love it when they, they appreciate how they got somewhere. I love that. And that's part of why I shared that song with you, show where they are, where they're going. And I think throughout this episode, you'll see how much they do appreciate their fans. And their fans are extremely appreciative of them. So here we are. The album comes out. Rush is actually about to go on tour, but they've got a bit of a problem. One of their other members is going to leave. And when you only have three, that's quite impactful. Now, when I researched this, the accounts differ on just why John Rutsey left the band. One stated that he just didn't like where the band was going and left on his own. One said he was missing gigs and they were concerned about him being unreliable on tour. And the other was that he was a diabetic and was actually suffering a variety of medical issues and had to put the band aside. Mm. So I don't know the true story here. I've seen all three in various articles, interviews. So I'm just going to tell you what we know. And that's John Rutsey left the band in 1974. And that harkens back to the phone call placed to Toronto on behalf of Neil Peart in a great story that his father Glenn called the day the white Corvette came to the dealership. Hmm. Summer, 1974. The Peart's machine shop and picture a pristine white Corvette pulling up to the front. Two men in suits get out. They go into the shop and ask for Neil, who is of course working. They have lunch with him. They tell him that they have a band in Toronto called Rush. They need a drummer and they'd like him to audition. So they leave. And according to Glenn's account, Neil was really conflicted by this. I think his experience in London was a bit of a letdown. He was kind of playing out in these bars and clubs. And I don't think he really had it in him to audition. But Glenn convinces him. He says to his son, Neil, this could be the chance of your life. We have to talk this over with your mother when we get home. But I feel you have to do this. It could be a dream come true. And hey, if it doesn't work out, there will still be a parts department that needs you. This dad just seems awesome. They're so sweet. They're so sweet. And so Neil packs up his mother's Ford Pinto and drives around the lake. Because bear in mind that where... They are in Ontario. Toronto is basically on the other side of the Great Lake. So he goes around in this Pinto to meet Alex Lifeson and Getty Lee. And this is a scene, if they ever do a movie about Rush, I really want to see how this plays out. Because the story is, Alex and Getty walk out to meet Neil. And he pulls up in this completely busted old Ford Pinto. Neil's kind of a big, awkward-looking man. So he kind of gets out of this car... And he starts unloading his drum equipment, which was packed into garbage cans. Because it was all he had. The account from Getty is this. Okay, so so wait. He just pulls up and he's got like trash cans in his car. Yeah, trash cans in his, in his car with, with drums in them. And he's unloading them from so a pinto. So he's just pulling up in yeah. like a sweet pinto. It wasn't sweet. Full it, of trash cans. The pinto was pretty busted. <laughs> <laughs> so, that would be a great scene in a movie it really was it really would be getty's getty's account of the situation goes like this he says he comes in this big goofy guy with a small drum kit alex and i were chuckling we thought he was some hick from the country and then he sat down and pummeled the drums i've never heard a drummer like that 
someone with that power and dexterity, as far as I was concerned, he was hired from the moment he started playing. See, that's why you can't judge people on their appearances. You don't know what's inside. Well, it's interesting because there are two very differing accounts of this. Uh, Neil calls the audition, quote, a complete disaster, even to this day. (laughs) Alex had one of my favorite quotes, which is, I don't think he's cool enough to be in our band. (laughs) The nerd rock gods say you're not cool (laughs) enough. However, Getty stands by him. And it's interesting because on July 29th, 1974, which is Getty's birthday... Neil is officially invited to join Rush. That's it's really sweet. Happy birthday, Getty. You get one of the world's greatest drummers. There you go. <laughs> and I actually think that this would probably be a perfect time for us to take a short break for our sponsors. Yes. And we are back. Let's dive back into the life of Neil Peart. So Neil's induction into the band was pretty quick because he gets the call. And it's something to this effect, which is, congrats, you're in the band. By the way, we need you at the airport in two weeks because we're going on our U.S. tour. <laughs> so he's just thrown right into it. It's like that video that we were just watching on Instagram where the the, the swimming instructor just throws the kid. Oh, into the pool? Into yep. the pool. <laughs> Here you like, go. There you are. <laughs> Hope you can swim. So this is another fun thing that I realized is that you have Alex Lifeson, stage name, Getty Lee, stage name, Neil Peart, given name. He's just—he's Neil Peart. Just Neil Peart. There's nothing wrong with that. I have one of the most unpronounceable last names on the planet, and I just—I <laughs> just kept it because I'm like, well, you're either going to screw it up or get it right. Either way, I know you're talking to me. And the jokes about mispronouncing Neil's name are legendary. <laughs> Peart, Peart, Peart—it uh, gets crazy. Why? Why did you almost kind of sound like the Swedish Chef? Oh, I got that again. I wish I had a good Swedish <laughs> Chef first, just at the ready. Oh, that'd be awesome. Takes us to August 14th, 1974, the Civic Arena in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Getty Lee, Alex Lifeson, and Neil Peart take the stage together for the first time. Rush opened for Uriah Heep and Manfred Mann's Earth Band. Can we please go one episode where we do not talk about Manfred Mann's Earth Band? Apparently not, but that was their (laughs) first gig. And now here's, listen to this. This first performance marks the first of what is estimated to be over 2,300 live performances made by Rush in the course of their career. I'm sorry, how many? Over 2,300. Wow. And I did the math on this and broke it down because you could say, oh, they were in a band for 40 plus years, whatever. So if you break that down into one tour, okay, and you do one show per day, Rush would have been on tour for six years, three months, and 16 days in a row. God, that is so long. Well, they were known for being a live band. I mean, even Neil said in interviews, every song they wrote was meant to be played live. And they were together for 40 years. Yeah, which says a lot. They were pretty much a perennial opening act. I mean, they were the go-tos for bands like Kiss, actually, Blue Oyster Cult, and an outfit called Hawkwind, which was a British-based band who had a lot of notable members, including Nick Turner, Ginger Baker, and the great, late Lenny Kilmeister. We we really apologize to our listeners that we have not done an episode on Lemmy yet. We we totally know. We get it. It is coming. Yeah, we got to do one on Lemmy. So they're pretty much touring as an opening act at this point and trying to get together material to be more than an opening act. So Neil at this point starts writing. 
According to Neil, he wrote all the lyrics because, quote, Alex and Getty just didn't want to. They were, <laughs> they were apparently very capable. They just didn't feel like doing it. So Neil became the primary lyricist. And a lot of the stuff he pulled was from what he read, which was a lot of sci-fi and fantasy, very prevalent in, in what comes next. There's also accounts that Neil played his sticks, quote, butt out, which means he actually held the thin end and struck the drums with the fat end, which they say lended to him having sort of a heavier sound. Now, throughout his entire life, he trained. No matter how good he was, he was always taking lessons. The reason he played that way, because when he first started out, he would break his drumsticks and he couldn't afford to replace them. <laughs> so he just flipped them around. That was his solution in the time. You know, it's really interesting that some of the most standout musicians that we talk about have figured out ways of doing things differently. Yes. Like Jimi Hendrix, his style of playing, mm -hmm. how he would string his guitar backwards, and Rick Allen, the drummer from Def Leppard, yeah. he figured out how to play the kit with, you know, just his two feet and the one arm. Like, it's interesting that necessity is the mother of invention. Oh, for sure. With these guys, and there's no real point to what I'm saying. <laughs> Sorry, audience, but yeah, it's just interesting that a couple people that we've talked about have had to do things differently, which makes them stand out in the most wonderful of ways. So as you pointed out, LD, they've been touring together for 40 years. You have to be able to get along, you know, or else you're going to kill each other on tour. And bands have been known to do less. I mean, look at The Clash and... Uh, Guns and Roses. Oasis. Oh, God. <laughs> and Oasis are brothers. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so to go for 44 years, Neil said that one of the most important things they shared was their sense of humor. From very early on, they would actually make jokes together and reenact Monty Python sketches. So they had a like-minded humor, and he said that's part of the reason they lasted so long. By 1975, Rush was ready to go back into the studio in Toronto, and they would release two albums that year. One was a breakthrough New Ground and Critical Success, and the other was Caress of Steel. Now, the first album is Fly By Night, and that was released on Mercury Records in February of 75. And this was the first time Neil was there, not only as a drummer, but as the primary lyricist. So you had a lot of songs influenced by folklore, mythology, literature. Uh, the, there was Anthem was one of the primary songs on there. An epic called Bytor and the Snow Dog, which was actually a take on an incident that a roadie had with a German shepherd some point on tour. <laughs> and they even had a song called Rivendell. So they were absolutely nerds. Yeah, and, and he was not cool enough to join the band. <laughs> I find that hilarious. If you guys don't know, Rivendell is the land of the elves in the Lord of the Rings. Yes, it is, which we have a painting of in our living room. Yes, we do. Fly By Night reached 113 on the Billboard Top 200, so not bad. And it went certified gold. <sighs> and then we have Caress of Steel. The album, quote, everyone loves to hate, said by critics. I think the biggest problem with Caress of Steel is it's a very confusing album. And I really felt I couldn't sit here and make all these jokes without playing a track off it. And I racked my brain because I'll tell you what I'm up against. There are only five songs on the entire album. Jeez. That's it. And it's a full length album i did consider lakeside park which is a song neil wrote about a place he worked when he was younger that he allegedly got fired from it's kind of like an amusement park then i looked at the rest of the tracks and i saw the necromancer that's 12 minutes and 49 seconds 
I would not allow that. It is it is a fantasy epic, so that, that wasn't going to happen. Nope. Not nope, not in this house. And I said, well, what about Fountains of Lameth? Well, that one's 20 minutes. Oh, absolutely not. And it includes a two-minute drum solo. <laughs> so I opted for the commercially safe bet on Caress of Steel from 1975, and that is a song which they played live a number of times, and I think the Rush fans out there are going to know it. This is a bit of a throwback. Here is Bastille Day.
Okay. We're back. Two thoughts. Go ahead. Do you want the 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 positive or the negative first? I always like to end on a high note. Okay. Oh! <laughs> Humor, oh, right? Oh, funny. Anyway, it's okay. I can see why people don't like it. Mm. But I can also see why people would like that song. I mean, mm-hmm. you listen to that though, and center stage is Neil. He's oh, he is driving that song. And those are his lyrics too. So you got that as well. Yeah. I you know, I can see the good and I can see the bad. I can see why it wouldn't be as popular with people. Also, it does it is a little long in the tooth when it yeah. comes to songs. But Yeah. It's it's not twenty minutes though. It's not, so I'm thankful for that. And, and no, and don't get me wrong. If Garth Brooks or Freddie Mercury or Dolly Parton did a twenty minute song, I would also not listen to it. Right, it's just across the board. So it's interesting. You said you kind of felt nah, you know, about it. Yeah, I'm lukewarm because that was sort of the reaction in general. Really, people didn't know what to make of the album. So that's fans critics and and of course the label the label was like guys what what are we doing here you know <laughs> um so there were a lot of i don't want to call them jokes because i think there was humor after the fact but there was a bit of gallows humor if you will because i think rush thought oh we just burned our bridges you know and the tour that they actually went on for caress of steel they nicknamed the going down the tubes tour <laughs> uh, which is actually coined by alex lifeson he said uh, we even had badges made up with that on it so I'm really hoping somewhere out there there's a listener who may have one. I'm not asking for the badge itself because it's probably worth a lot. But if you can put a picture of it on our socials, that would be awesome. Yeah, please. I'll give that out at the end of the episode. So please, like, post it to our Twitter or our Facebook page. We would love to see that. Now, this was an important turning point. So that's also why I keep bringing up the Caress of Steel album is because I think it marked a fork in the road for Rush. Their label's kind of on them now at this point. And so they said, look, guys, you got to be more commercially viable. We can't have more like this, basically. And so Alex Lifeson put it best when he said, if we were going down in flames, at least we were going to go down on our terms. So in response, Rush just ups the ante. In April of 1976, they released their fourth studio album under the same label. So the label's still with them. And that was a very well-known album, 2112. They were told specifically to not make a concept album. And Rush completely ignored that advice. (laughs) They were told to write shorter songs. Rush didn't do that either. And they were also told the old time is money. It took them six months to write and over a month to record. Ooh, and and studio time (laughs) is so expensive. Here's the best part, though. The opening track on the album is a 20-minute sci-fi opus that Pierre wrote. You're not you're not going to play that, are you? <laughs> I am not going to play that. That is the opening track though. So again, they basically gave the record label the middle finger and they're like, "We're doing our thing. You're coming with us or you're not." There are a lot of other notable songs on there. Twilight Zone, Passage to Bangkok, Something for Nothing. And so, again, Rush doubles down on what they're doing instead of going in a more commercial direction, and it works. That, But you know what? That says something about them, that their label was willing to not only bypass Crest of Steel, but <laughs> that even when they were, it took them six months to write it, and it took them a month to record it, they could have been cut at any point, but that just shows you 
how much their label believed in them. And how much they believed in each other. Yeah. You know, they wouldn't have... I've always pictured Rush as a band as kind of three racehorses running as fast as they can, and neither one wants to lose to the other two. So they have a competitive but supportive spirit. That's awesome. And, and you know, it it's it's good to hear it's it's refreshing to hear the album actually goes to number 94 on the billboard list getting a little higher and within two years goes gold not bad that is not bad by the year 1995 the 2112 album would be certified platinum nice three times over whoa yeah huge fans loved it critics were still not sure what to make of rush they basically said these guys are good but what are they doing you know but the label bought in, they bought in, and we go back to Lifeson who quoted, we don't want to change what people think about rock and roll, we just want to show them what we think of it. That's a cool quote. That is a very good quote. And, very and quotable. Again, going back to, to The Professor, Neil had said in a later interview, we wrote songs that we liked, and in the end we just hoped other people would like them. <laughs> he just seems like such a great guy, I wanted to have a beer with him. Aww. So, when it comes to the touring life, we know that Rush did a lot of shows, and some of you may be listening, hoping there is some kind of expose on the Rush tour, that there was some salacious activity, drug use. And shenanigans. Shenanigans. Uh, no, there there aren't. Rush, Rush was well-behaved on tour. According to Neil, they occasionally, quote, partied too much in the 70s, but really, who didn't? Uh, here's to say that you're, Neil is kind of the... Very calm peanut butter <laughs> in the sandwich that is the just bat shit crazy ness of John Bottom, Keith Moon. Yeah, he's kind of the calm, the eye of the storm, if you will. <laughs> he's the one that is not throwing TVs out of <laughs> <laughs> or driving a motorcycle yeah. down a hallway. <laughs> yeah. Um, and can bear in mind they were touring with bands like Kiss at the time, who were known to get a little a little raucous in their. Uh, they're touring years, if I'm not mistaken. I feel like this would be like bare naked ladies going on tour with Guns N' Roses. Oh, I would pay so much money. Oh, yeah. All the oh, money. yeah. I'd just shut up and take my bank account. So you're not going to find any scandal here. Like I said earlier, Alex Lifeson actually married his high school sweetheart, Charlene. They had a son in 1970, which is before they even went on tour, and they were officially married in 1975. Alex has two children and two grandchildren, and he's still married to Charlene to this day. That's sweet. Getty married his wife, Nancy, in 1976. They also have two children and are still married to this day. So rare. Neil entered a common law union because Canada observes common law marriage. If you're with somebody for a certain duration of time, you are now married. And he was in a relationship with Jacqueline Taylor. And they were officially in a common law union as of 1975. I'm not sure how long they were together prior to that, but... As of 1975, they were commonly joined. I think in America, it's like 10 years, but I'm not sure about Canada. I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know what the Canadian laws are. Again, hit us up on the socials. Let yeah. us know. Canadian listeners, come out here. Tell me, how, tell, me, tell me how long it is. So Neil didn't do a lot of interviews. He was actually known for being quite uh, reserved, but people did ask him about what it was like on tour, and frankly, Neil didn't like it. He wasn't a big fan. He liked being in you know, his music and whatnot. He just didn't like being on tour. That was kind of tough. And they after, they often ask him questions about people like Bonham and like Moon, who went completely out of direction. And Peart's insightful response was, you know, it was really tragic because these were people who were in the spotlight. And in the end, they felt like they didn't deserve it. And they were trying to fill a hole, mm. which is very, I think, again, he himself never 
did anything that they did, but he said it in a very relatable way, I think. Yeah. Neil didn't like to fly, so there was that. Um, and he always said, though, when it came to the audience, we need to earn their respect each and every time we play. We need to justify them taking the time, money, and resources to be there. So they had a very fan-first kind of approach. Neil filled himself with books while on tour. He was a self-proclaimed reading hermit. So whenever he wasn't on stage, he was reading. And there are accounts of just stacks of books that he would bring. Mm -hmm. And he would just tear through them. He loved to read anything and everything. Biographies, fiction, anything he could get his hands on. And since he liked his privacy, he would often use fake names when checking into hotels. There's a long list of these, but I'm going to point out my favorites, which were Joe Rockhead from the Flintstones. (laughs) Johnny Gilbert from Jeopardy, so Jeopardy. tie into the late Quebec. And uh, as the 90s crept in, Waylon Smithers. <laughs> I don't know if anyone was thrown off by this, but it's really funny. Because uh, I know artists such as Tommy Lee and John Bon Jovi did the same thing, but they used a bit more uh, racy pseudonyms. It just it, It's funny that he used other people's names right. to do his job. And then my favorite TV show, which is ending on Thursday... They're like one of the running jokes of that is that it, it's supernatural. The TV show is supernatural. They will use rockers' names as their pseudonyms as FBI agents, and they have used the members of Rush as their names before. Yeah, so, full circle. Yeah, I think they did uh, Lee and Peart, if I'm not mistaken. And that shoots in yeah. Canada. Yes, it does. Full See, full circle there. Everything, all roads lead to Canada. Well, and the other thing is, is, as you mentioned, the long success of Supernatural, I think, is due to the chemistry between Jensen Ackles and Jared Padalecki. And the chemistry I have with Jensen Ackles. Uh, I'm sure that helps the viewership as well. Hello, Jensen. I'm looking at his face right now. <laughs> How I, you doing? I think we can all agree, though, without those two getting along, everything would have gone up in flames. I Yeah, I don't think it would yeah. have been, just like Rush, I don't think it would have been as successful as it was if it weren't for the love and respect that they had for each other and the fact that they just have the ability to get along. And they were on tour constantly. The 70s were so tour heavy. In fact, two of their albums released in the late 70s were done basically while on tour. And let me just tell you, we've gone on road trips together, honey. <laughs> it's It's been rough at times. And I have wanted to kill you mm-hmm. at least three times on the way to Vegas. Maybe we need to perform Monty Python sketches. Okay, I'll do <laughs> Fair it. Fair enough. I have the holy hand grenade and go. <laughs> uh, the Farewell to Kings tour was released. I'm sorry. The Farewell to Kings album was released in 1977, which includes the very popular Closer to the Heart. And the Hemispheres album was released one year later with the epic La Via Strangiato. And there's actually a two-part saga, each of them 10 minutes long. Uh, it starts on Farewell to Kings and finishes in Hemispheres. <laughs> it's a two-parter. But to the same point, uh, actually, at the, around this time, Neil actually welcomes a child. His wife, Jacqueline, gives birth to a baby girl, Selena, in 1978. So he wants more time with his family, and it's really tough because those two albums, Farewell to Kings and Hemispheres, were recorded in Wales. They were basically doing a European tour, went over to Wales when it was done, and recorded the album. So he hadn't been home in a very long time. Wow. Wait, was it... Because these all start blending together. Who was it that said that they wanted to catch the chaotic nature of touring was that john bonham it sounds like something bonham would say I yeah i don't know for sure yeah okay i'm lindley cut that out i was just a question <laughs> okay because they're not scrapped 
So Neil is now shifting lyrically because while he's he, he's got a child now, he's seen more of the world. He's actually writing more about what he sees. So he's getting away from kind of the book stuff. He's still reading like crazy, but he isn't so much writing these fantasy epics. They're more introspective and philosophical. And it's around this point that Rush did something very unique that they would continue to do for really the next 30 years. There would be musical movements that sort of came in. And Rush would incorporate them, but at the same time offer something a little bit different. And I think that's very prevalent in the next two albums, which are widely considered among their best. The first, of course, is the fifth studio album, released in 1980, and that is Permanent Waves. There's a lot of great songs on this disc, and the movements at this time were influenced by reggae, and it was actually just the start of, I think New Wave was early 80s, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. In early to mid-80s? Am I wrong in thinking that it could have had its... Because New Wave kind of had its roots in punk, correct? It sort of evolved out of punk, yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Can I Google? Yeah, absolutely. So, Songs on Permanent well, Waves... Before you move yeah. on. And I have a correction. Permanent Waves is actually their seventh studio album. Okay, we well need to maybe rock it back then. Okay, I'll go back. Okay, hang on. When you have your fact, let me know. Mid to late seventies, United Kingdom. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. Their seventh studio album was Permanent Waves, released in nineteen eighty. And this disc was interesting because there were some movements going on in music that they embraced and again moved in a different direction. You had reggae. And you had, I believe, New Wave, correct? Yes. Okay. So they incorporate those elements into Permanent Waves. There are some great, great songs on there. I think Spirit of the Radio is one of the best and probably one of the most commercially known. And Free Will is also a really great one. And this is, again, how Rush kind of moved with the times, but at the same time moved against the times. Permanent Waves would be, up until this point, the highest charting album for Rush. It went to number four on the Billboard charts and number three in the UK. It took less than three months for it to go gold, which is pretty quick. Yeah. I'm, well, before you were saying what their second album took two years to go gold. So yes. they're definitely picking up steam at this point. Oh, yeah. And they're, they're building a fan base. Of course, this is all a precursor to what many consider, and it's hard to argue against this album, the, the pinnacle work of Rush. Say that again. This is all leading up to... Back up off the mic a little bit. This is all leading up to what is widely considered the pinnacle album for Rush. And that is, of course, Moving Pictures. So Permanent Waves gave Rush a lot more leash. You're, you're popping okay. your keys. That's the problem. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. You can get a little bit closer. Mm -hmm. Just make. Just try not to pop your peas. Okay, I'll try. So much. So Permanent Waves gave Rush a lot more leeway creatively because they're still with Mercury Records. At this point, they're like, okay, guys, you, you can make a hit, you know? We're, we're okay with you now. So by the time it was time to record the eighth album of their career, the record label essentially backed off and Rush assumed a lot more creative control. Neil Peart said, it was a coming-of-age album for us as a band. We didn't have the recording label breathing down our necks. Rush's Moving Pictures was recorded at Le Studio. That's what it's called. I think that's French for the studio. The studio. 
It's better known actually by musicians as Perry's Farm. Um, and they went in to record this in October to November of 1980. This farm was actually owned by Andre Perry, hence the name. And his whole design behind it was he turned a farm into essentially an artist retreat. It was set in the Laurentian Mountains of Quebec. It was supposed to be very scenic. It was very isolated. And it had that whole kind of atmosphere where you can just go and create. And of course, Rush aren't the only ones to record there. I'm going to give you a list here. Here are some names you probably know. These acts have all recorded at La Studio. Rush. Cat Stevens. Okay. The Bee Gees. I know them. Chicago. Ooh. The Police. Okay. Brian Adams. <laughs> He's Canadian. Yes, so... he is. David Bowie. Uh huh. Corey Hart. <laughs> yep. He wears his sunglasses at night. <laughs> the Cult. Hey. Queensryche. What? Really? Yeah, they recorded there. Huh. And actually, they cite Rush as one of their primary influences. I could hear that. The Jeff Healy Band. Okay. Keith Richards. Sarah McLaughlin. Oh. Celine Dion. I mean, she's Canadian, so. The Bare Naked Ladies. They're Canadian and yeah. I love them. And Glass Tiger. <laughs> I had to save the best for last. <laughs> All recorded at the studio. <laughs> Glass Tiger! <laughs> Forever. So this gave Rush a few advantages. First, they were back home. So they're back in Canada. It's good hey, to honey. Mm-hmm. Don't you forget me, me when I'm, I'm gone. gone. My heart would break. <laughs> La Studio, ladies and gentlemen. La Studio. It's like Glass Tiger is <laughs> in my living room. Aren't they always in our hearts, if not our living room? <laughs> <sighs> so, yes. Canada, wonderful country, and Russia's glad to be back there. And also this meant that Neil could go home on the weekends. So he would record during the week and then go home and see his daughter on the weekends, which was nice. So it gave them that leeway as well. We can talk a little louder. Neil describes about writing lyrics on a cottage by the lake in his time up there. So he goes out, he spends the day writing lyrics, and then they come back to a barn where they actually do the recording in the barn. So a lot of the acoustics are credited to you know, the construction of Perry's barn. This is the space where ne- this is the space where Rush produced some of their most well-known songs. It allowed them to be creative. It allowed Neil to really kind of sort through his thoughts because all this time he'd been making notes. He'd be kind of journaling and keeping an eye out for everything he saw. One of the famous ones was on a flight into the Ontario airport. He could overhear the Morse code for the which is for the airport code in Toronto YYZ. You know, if we had done this episode like three weeks ago, I could have won an episode of HQ Trivia. Was that the question? That was the question, was which band wrote a song based on the Morse code of an airport. And it sure enough was Rush. I did not pick Rush. (laughs) So Neil heard that. He's like, wouldn't that be a great song? And that's, of course, the driving rhythm you hear at the start of YYZ. It's the Morse code for YYZ. Inspiration strikes in the strangest places. Oh, it sure does. And by the way, Toronto's airport is considered among the cleanest in the world. That doesn't shock me. No, not at all. And uh, that was obviously a great song off Moving Pictures, but the list certainly doesn't end there. There is another well-known song. The opening synthesizer track was apparently discovered by accident. I don't know if someone fell or they moved something or changed something. Please, but, uh, please. I'm really glad that my brother's not here right now, because oh, if bizarre. you say the word synthesizer in front of him, <laughs> he, he, gets angry. he will just blow up so maybe it's a good thing he's not on this particular episode it might be for the best nonetheless i'm going to reserve that song 
because I think it has a special place and that place is not now. Instead, I'm actually going to look at a song that encapsulates at least lyrically what we think Neil was going through at that time. Like I said, it's a bit more introspective and philosophical. And honestly, this is one of my favorite Rush songs ever. This one comes from the Moving Pictures album, which was released in February of 1981. And that song is Limelight.
back and i i heard something ld you i've never heard you say about rush before and what was that that you actually kind of like that song you don't get excited (laughs) (laughs) here's the thing please guys understand that i I hope i don't get hate mail for this because i'm sure that i i have total adoration and love for someone that you guys can't stand and I don't, it's not even that I can't stand Rush. It's just I haven't been exposed to them and I don't seek them out. So yeah. please, please don't send me hate <laughs> mail because I am a sensitive soul. Well, if you look at those lyrics, they're very thoughtful and almost sad. Well, beyond the gilded cage, like yeah. that's, that's impressive. And when he's talking about fame and he says, I can't pretend a stranger is a long awaited friend, that's. That's sad. Yeah, and and the interesting thing is that the, the clip that you showed me actually with the interview with Getty, uh, he talks about you know Neil's lyrics, and he said in a way I'm the spokesperson for Neil's lyrics. He's like I have to believe them, so it came from a very genuine place, I think. Which I think shows you how in sync they were mm-hmm. as a band, where he could understand where Neil was coming from, where where Neil was coming from in his lyrics. And I think it's a tribute to, you know, A, Neil's writing of capturing what they felt at that time, and B, like you said, the band's ability to relate and convey that. Yeah. That is art. Moving Pictures is, of course, Rush's best-selling album. It came out, like I said, in February of 81. It went number one in Canada, no shock, and number three in the U.S. Now, here's the amazing thing. It comes out in February. By April... The album was already platinum. Wow. Yep. <laughs> Wait, not even gold, platinum. It went platinum. Platinum. Yeah. Yep, in just a matter of months. And by 1995, it would go platinum four times over. Wow. It's crazy, yeah. So things certainly weren't slowing down for our friends with Rush. The mid-80s brought, again, the new wave movement, and this is the synth period where TJ gets a little touchy. I don't mind it if it's used properly. It's kind of like CGI. I've got mixed feelings. There is a sense of nostalgia and it dates itself when you use too much synth. But my brother is, his stance on the synth is best explained by that guy who's at his desk and just starts knocking, you know, the, <laughs> meme, you know, the meme where the guy is just sitting at his desk and he like knocks the stapler over and then the pack of pens and then his computer. I think that's the way my brother views the synth. On the other hand, though, this movement brought in electric instruments, which almost gave Neil sort of a piece of his identity. Now, I remember one of the things I had you do in prep for this episode was look up his drum kit. That's so stupid. <laughs> it's crazy. It is a, I call it Neil's office. Cause there, when, there, are, there are so many things. It is a 360 degree setup, for those of you who don't know, with a little space so Neil can kind of get to his chair That's i will it. post a picture of the the of neil's kit onto instagram it's bonkers but what what i was saying was i would love for someone to 
get an overhead shot of him just doing one song and have all the, the, the drums, the different parts of the drums lit up. And as he uses them, the light cuts off so that you can see how many he actually uses during the song. And the amazing thing is he uses all of it. There's not one piece that's just kind of there to be there. It's all purposeful. That, that, that It's too much. There's so much there. It's amazing. There's and, so much there. And part of that did come out of the electronic music movement because Neil incorporated electric drums. So he had an electric piece on stage with his setup and he also had conventional drums and he would play them both at the same time. Jeez. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy. Save some talent for somebody else, dude. <laughs> I know. You're hogging it all, Neil. Uh, this is what gave Rush part of, partially its unique sound of that blending of things. Again, I use the CGI example. Neil was also a master of the symbol. He would use tons of symbols on stage. Uh, when joking about it, people would say, how many pieces are in your kit? Neil would smile and say, yes. <laughs> uh, it's estimated, however, that there are upwards of 40 components to a Neil Peart drum kit. And the cost ranges from $7,500 to approximately $9,000. So like a Corolla. Pretty much. Toyota Corolla, <laughs> yeah. By 1982... Oh, I'm going to back, go back on that one. Between 1982 and 1987, Rush... I can't talk. By the way, you're wearing the same shirt that you were wearing. That's kind of sad. No, because you... It's like you got snot or something on it. Oh, jeez. That's gross. <laughs> Between 1982 and 1987, Rush released four studio albums, and they are in order Signals, Grace Under Pressure, Power Windows, and Hold Your Fire. This period was very new wavy. It did have the synth, which drives TJ up the wall, but there's a lot of fan favorites in here. Now, one of the things Rush did when recording this way is they would sort of give themselves a personality. So their new wave persona that Neil talked about I thought was funny was the fabulous men. <laughs> so when they'd be playing, they would kind of experiment and they'd go, oh, no, wait, this is this is the fabulous men. And they'd go, oh, OK. And they'd kind of get it. You know, mm -hmm. that was their, quote, new wave persona. They also had one called Rock and F, which I think is cover for an expletive. OK. Yeah. But if it was supposed to be more kind of uh, hard rock, they would say this is Rock and F. And the band would, again, adapt what they were doing. Just shows how in sync they were mentally and, you know, on stage. But I just like that. We're the fabulous men. OK. They are fabulous. So some of the notable songs from this period, I think Signals is a wonderful album. It's got Subdivisions, great song, New World Man, one of my favorites, probably top seven Rush songs for me of all time. That is oddly specific. I know. I, I, I have my list. Power Windows in 1985, again, highly overlooked. It was actually the first album released solely on compact disc. Oh, wow. It was Power Windows. And we yeah. don't even have those anymore. I know. They're now obsolete. <laughs> Uh, great songs including Middletown Dreams, Emotion Detector, and The Manhattan Project. Okay, that's, see, that's a clever name. Manhattan Project? No. No. Oh. Emotion Detector. Emotion Detector, yeah. <laughs> they had some clever ones. Hold Your Fire had Force 10, Prime Mover, Lock and Key, and that was also the first time Rush collaborated with a backing vocalist because on most of the tracks on Hold Your Fire, released in 1987, you will hear Amy Mann. Oh, wow. Yeah, she was backing vocalist. So I'm going to go to my Dark Horse album here. Now, full disclosure, the albums I like have often made me unpopular in the Rush community. <laughs> Just warning you. I tend to pick ones that are not necessarily fan favorites. Look, everyone loves moving pictures. Most people love permanent waves. Counterparts is divisive. Roll the bones, too. But I get a mixed reaction when I tell them one of my favorite albums is actually Grace Under Pressure. 
and that one was released in 1984. It's actually a very dark album. It covers the Cold War and the Holocaust. That's a lot of pain. Uh, yeah, a ton. Uh, there is a track on there called Red Sector A, which is basically about the Holocaust, and it's kind of the concern that the world may revert back to the worst qualities of humanity. So it is in many ways considered a dark album. And I think this is reflected in how it got made. You know, Lifeson actually said it was one of the most challenging albums the band made. They wrote it quickly and they get the studio and then things slowed down. Lifeson said, once we got there, it just took a long time. Sometimes you can't really help it. No matter how hard or how fast you work, there are certain things about recording that just take time. And so I'm going to share with you my Dark Horse track. It is from the 1984 album, Grace Under Pressure. This is, again, in my top pantheon of Rush songs, divisive though it may be, and it is Distant Early Warning. Are we going to get letters? No, because it's actually a fan favorite. Okay, good. It, it's the kind of thing where the fan base is divisive, but a lot of people do like it. Okay. Critically, it was meh, because people thought they were... You know, kind of a little too new wavy.
we're back. Okay, I'm warming up to them. Just an early warning. Yeah, that's, a, again, a, a different kind of offering from them. Yeah. So, again, Neil Peart is just so quotable, and he throws one out here that I have to share, and that's, no changes are permanent, but change is. I love it. D- did somebody, like, follow him with a notebook so we can have a book of his quotes? Yeah, he did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he wrote this all down. He wrote seven books. Oh seven. God. Bear in mind, he never went to college. Neil spent his college years basically bumming around London. <laughs> Neither did I. Look yeah. at me. I'm totally fine. But again, he wasn't talented. He was relentless, right? So again, changes are coming for Rush. Their sound is evolving. It's moving now out of this kind of 80s, new wave-ish pop. And now we're getting into the 90s, where you have the influence of a harder rock kind of scene. And once again, Rush is going to pave the way for several acts, which we will cite in a little bit here. They actually changed labels at this point. So they were with Mercury Records until about 1989, give or take. They join Atlantic Records. They go back to the studio. (laughs) And they record TJ's favorite album, Presto, in November of 1989. And in a way, it's sort of them getting back to the rock outfit that they were. There are some amazing songs on there like Superconductor, Chain Lightning, and Hand Over Fist. And, of course, they go back out on tour. So (laughs) Neil is, again, trying to cope with this as best he can. In fact, in 1989, he made a statement saying that he didn't want to tour anymore, and the fans were so outraged that Getty and Alex had to come out and be like, no, 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 he didn't mean we're not going to stop touring. We just mean that he doesn't like it. That's a known fact. But this led to a very unfortunate perception of Neil because he wouldn't do the meet and greets. He wouldn't, you know, be in the public eye. He would, you know, thank fans when he met him, but he wouldn't go out of his way. So people started thinking he was either eccentric or arrogant. And I hate, I hate that. I hate that so much with a burning passion. That should not be someone's mindset. The thing is, just because they're famous doesn't mean they owe you anything. Exactly. And this is my, this is why I think the paparazzi just irritates me so (laughs) much. But like a year ago... Poor Finn Wolfhard was literally just walking into a hotel after like shooting for 12 hours and he didn't stop to sign autographs for his fans. I'm like, guys, you're hanging outside his hotel. He is going to go to sleep. He is working. And just because he doesn't stop to sign your whatever memorabilia doesn't mean he's a bad person. It just means he's tired. Like, I get that. So... You know what? I'm on Neil's side here. Mm-hmm. Just because they're a celebrity doesn't mean they owe you anything. Right. And I have been turned down for pictures and autographs, and I totally get it. Yeah. Like, I'm going to be respectful for that. I'm still going to ask, yes, but if I'm turned down, I'm not going to blast them on Twitter and be like, Nicolas Cage did not stop <laughs> to take a picture with me, but he did wish me a happy birthday. See, and there I think, you go. I think that's the, that's the best part. He did wish me a happy birthday. Yeah, and I mean, Neil was someone who, again, he never wanted the spotlight. He never wanted to be famous, you know? He just wanted to play his music. So it was funny because in one of his rare television interviews, which would take place in 2006, Neil made the joke that since 1989, he has been successfully quitting touring for 17 years. So, <laughs> And at this point, Rush was still touring, so it was just really funny. And sure enough, the 90s brought more of this change that Neil said would be, you know, always, always going to happen. And this is when they get back to more rock focus. So they're sort of moving away from the synth stuff. They incorporate some elements. For the most part, they're looking at guitar, bass, drums, 
vocals. And this is a time where people say that Neil's beats got more aggressive, that the bass lines got more aggressive, and it started to crop up in the 1991 release, my first exposure to Rush, the Roll the Bones album, which came out again, 1991. This was kind of a rock album, more in the traditional sense, although it did have some funkiness to it, it did have some groove, it unfortunately had some rapping, which is not something Rush fans like to remember. <laughs> but uh, it, it's on the song Roll the Bones, which is all by account a great song, but they had other ones like Dreamline and You Bet Your Life. It's just a solid album, and it was really a rock album. Which, by the way, if you've seen Neil play, it's he's very aggressive. And I remember Getty Lee even said that when he first started playing. He pummeled the drums. So he's he's going to work on these things. The hardest rock album, though, is considered Counterparts. And this was another time when I was listening to Rush and going, oh, this is great, you know. This was their 15th studio album, released in 1993. And it was definitely a rock album. They were nominated for a Grammy. The song Leave That Thing Alone, an instrumental. But they didn't win? Yes, Rush was nominated seven times, zero wins in the Grammy department. That sucks. Yeah, it's awful. And other great tracks were Animate, Alien Shore. It was just a great album. And I remember listening to it with my friends and being like, oh, this is awesome. So I was kind of that comic book guy that I mentioned earlier. (laughs) I didn't have the shirt, though. That was my friend Pete. And, of course, the jokes about Rush lacking female fans were quite prevalent at this point because they were more hard rock. And like you said, LD, this wasn't really your scene in the mid-90s, I don't think. Um, You were gravitating in a different direction. You could say that, yes. (laughs) But uh, it was a joke about it in the 2009 film I Love You Man, which stars Paul Rudd and Jason Segel. So he found him. Rush actually plays themselves in a very funny scene there. What happens in the scene is Jason and Paul actually break into Rush's backstage room. They have fake passes. So they're waiting to meet Rush, and they're all really excited. (laughs) And Rush plays themselves, and they're walking down the hall to go to their dressing room. And the conversation you over here is Alex says, I think that's uh, four that I counted. And Getty says, and I saw three in the balcony. And Neil says, seven women at a Rush show? I think that's a new record. See? I am not alone in this. Well, he actually brought up in an interview a show they played in London where Neil described the tickets as, quote, clearly have been given away. And he said the entire time he could see one woman in the front row standing there with clearly her husband or boyfriend or significant other. And the entire time she's scowling and has her fingers in her ears the entire concert. So when asked by the host of a Canadian talk show... Neil, what do you do if you like Rush, but your wife or your girlfriend doesn't? Neil says this. If she wants to stay at home, please let her stay at home. But if she can't, please give her earplugs. (laughs) That's from Neil, everybody. (laughs) Neil started embarking on his own projects at this point. In 1994, he did a Buddy Rich tribute album, which actually came out of an appearance he did around 1992. He was invited by Buddy's daughter, Kathy, to do a charity event in New York. And, of course, it was Buddy Rich. There was no way Neil was going to say no. But he was unhappy with his performance. He felt he could have done better. And so in response, he goes, I'm going to do a tribute album. So pulls together all these items for the Burning for Buddy tribute album. He also took up cycling while on tour. So when the band would have days off, Neil would basically get on his bike and ride around wherever he was. And he would spend the day going to museums or art galleries or just something to learn about where he was. And it didn't matter if he was in Paris, which he biked through all of Paris, by the way. Wow. Or in Providence, Rhode Island. He would just like, again, go to a museum and learn. That's what he wanted to do on his days off. And eventually he would trade the 
bike for a motorcycle. And as many of you may know about Neil, he is an avid motorcyclist. He loved his motorcycles, particularly BMW motorcycles. Those were his, his collections. And he would release his first book. So 1996, Neil releases The Masked Rider, which is an account of his cycling trip through Cameroon in Africa. Cameroon! Which is RuPaul's Drag Race? RuPaul's yeah. Drag Race. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, he basically documented his journey by bicycle through the country of Cameroon. Cameroon! I'm which... sorry. I'm going to just keep <laughs> saying that. If you just keep if you keep saying the country, I'm going to keep yelling it. Well, one critic actually approached Neil about the book and said, thank you for writing this book so we don't have to. Uh, <laughs> I guess which was about his tough ride through that part of africa but that was first of like i said seven books that he wrote he wrote a total of seven in his lifetime which is really unbelievable also neil never stopped studying drums a lot of people find this interesting he's now recognized as one of the best drummers in the world and what is he doing he's taking lessons he actually studies with freddie gruber who was a, a jazz drummer instructor i feel like i know that name i don't know why I, he is a prominent drummer i just don't know from what but he's taking lessons so again he's one of the best He's taking lessons, and in light of this, he releases a DVD that's instructional. So if you want to play like Neil Peart, you can pick up his first DVD compilation, A Work in Progress. <laughs> I like the, if you, if you want to learn how to play like Neil Peart, first of all, get $9,000. And put up every drum and, imaginable. Yeah, that's, that's step one. Step two, he'll teach you how to play them. <laughs> and be awesome, pretty much. So he released a DVD for this, and it is actually thought that this change inspired a switching in the way Neil gripped the, the drumsticks. Now, he wasn't doing them backwards like before, but he was holding them differently, creating a different sound, which brings us to one of my favorite albums and a highly contested one, according to Rush fans. And I remember this because I bought it the week it came out. I bought it that week. It was in 1996, and that is Test for Echo. A great album, and it's actually a concept album, too. This is a rock disc. There's no question about it. And the song I picked to share with you off of this one is the second song on the album, and this highlights not only Alex Lifeson's guitar work, which is, again, superb, but Neil is really driving these beats home. This is, again, among the more aggressive drum lines. So I'm going to share with you right now from the Test for Echo album, Driven. <laughs> But it's my turn to drive Driven to the margin of error Driven to the edge of control Driven to the margin of terror Driven to the edge of a deep dark Driven to the margin of error 
Was test for echo again more in the rock vein yeah actually you know if you want to compare like we've been doing mm-hmm. it's along the edge of metallica oh yeah i could see that too and also the progression metallica took from being really heavy in the 80s to being more kind of like the, i don't know what you would call that kind of rock but 90s kind of grungy you, you grungy yeah i mean they're still metal they're still rock it's hard rock yeah yeah Test for Echo goes up to number five on the Billboard chart. And again, divided in the Rush community. Some like it, some don't. I actually saw a list where it's considered the worst Rush album of all time, which I wholly disagree with. I thought the Caress of Steel was. <laughs> this list did not put Caress of Steel last. It put Caress of Steel like third to last. And I'm huh. like, come on. But. So really, even the fans are divided about what to be divided about? <laughs> yes, as is typical <laughs> among fandom. 
Sadly, this marked a high point followed by a series of lows for both Rush and Neil personally. The test for Echo Tour concluded in July of 1997. Neil returns home, and at that time his only daughter, Selena, goes back to University of Montreal on August 10th, 1997. Unfortunately, she never made it. The 19-year-old Selena was killed in a single car crash on the highways of Canada. Jeez. But you know what's so scary is that she was born in 78. She would only be a year older than us. Yeah. She was so gone. She died at 19. So, Jesus. That is so... I can't, I can't imagine what a person goes through when they lose a child. I, I, I it's unimaginable. It is. It's, it's, and, and again, this is a time where, again, Neil is a very private person. I think only those closest to him would really know what that was like. Yeah. Which includes his immediate family, and I'm sure Getty and Alex as well, because they were one of the few that were really close with him. In fact, Neil's reps were the first to get out in front of this and said they requested privacy right away. And the Peart family actually set up a scholarship foundation in Selena's name. <sighs> Yeah. At the funeral, of course, were members of the media family. It was a very small affair, and Getty and Alex attended. At that point... Because they're family. They basically are, yeah. They're family. Neil pulled them aside and said, consider me retired. At this point, I don't think Getty and Alex were going to argue. Rush wasn't disbanded, but they were officially put on hold at this point. Neil's wife, Jacqueline, completely broke down. And for this section, I'm actually going to read you Neil's words verbatim. These came from his memoirs. Because, again, you said, how does someone react during a tragedy like this? Here is the words of a man who lived it. It soon became apparent that Jackie's world was completely shattered forever. She had fallen to pieces, and she never came back together again. As my life suddenly forced me to learn more than anyone ever wanted to know about grief and bereavement... I learned the sad fact that most couples do not stay together after losing a child. Outrageous. So wrong. So unfair. So cruel to heap more pain and injustice on those who have suffered so much already. In my blissful ignorance, I would have imagined the opposite. That those who most shared the loss would cling to one another. But no, she wouldn't let me comfort her and she didn't want anything to do with me. It was as though she knew she needed me, but her tortured heart had no place in it for me or anybody else. If she couldn't have Selena, she no longer wanted anything. She just wanted to die. Jesus, that is so heavy. And she was diagnosed with terminal cancer. God, what? Yeah. Neil cites this as the start of what he calls a second nightmare. The time frame is unclear, but what we do know is that Jacqueline started having strokes. Ten months after the death of Selena, Neil would lose his, his wife, Jacqueline. I, I can't even begin to imagine what you what you go through. I mean, I, to lose yeah. your your child and then not even not even getting over, like not even having the opportunity. I'm not going to say getting over. That's that's the wrong words. Mm. Not even having a chance to wholly grieve for the loss of your child, and now you lose your wife. You've lost your partner that you were looking to to grieve with, and now she's gone as well. I can't. God, I'm so sorry. Yeah, they've been together, bear in mind, since 1975. Yeah, they were together since 1975, and this is now 1997. Wow. Yeah. So how does someone react? I mean, that is the big question. Neil was, he was destroyed, of course. I mean, uh, obviously, and I don't, I don't, 
fault him one bit for that. Oh, yeah. And he even puts in his writing that he had lost all focus. He was convinced that the reason Jacqueline died was because she gave up. Mm-hmm. Yes, there was the disease, but she had no will to fight it. In his words, I remember thinking, how does anyone survive something like this? And if they do, what kind of person comes out on the other end? I didn't know. But throughout that time of grief, sorrow, desolation, and complete despair, something in me seemed determined to carry on. Something would come up. Of course, Getty and Alex backed off. Rushes on hold for now. Totally understandable. And that's when Neil goes on his famous motorcycle journey. He leaves Canada and he embarks on a 55,000-mile motorcycle tour, spanning all the way from the northern parts of Canada down to Central America. He chronicles the whole thing, and he writes a memoir called Ghost Rider, Travels on the Healing Road. The book didn't come out until 2002, but it is during this time that Neil sort of reflected and ruminated. I actually have the book in my Kindle queue. That's going to be my next read. Oh, wow. Yeah. Tell me how it is. He... Travels the infamous Trail of Tears. I know you're aware of that. The way Neil described it in his book, which actually gave birth to a later Rush album, was that the people who wandered and were lost left what he called vapor trails. Sort of a, uh, again, a vague reminder of that they were living, you know. After he's traveling, he finally comes back and starts to settle in. In September of 2000, Neil remarries. He meets a young lady named Carrie Nuttall through the photographer of Rush at the time. His name was Andrew McNaughton. And he described his meeting Carrie as life-changing. So that's, I think, when he says things would come up, I think that's what he's referring to. So he remarries in 2000. He actually relocates to Santa Monica, California with his wife and works on becoming an American citizen, which takes about 10 years. So he actually gains U.S. citizenship in 2010. By 2001, he was ready to get back to Rush. So he gets Getty and Alex back together. They go into the studio And they begin working out their next album, their next strategy. Although it is agreed upon that Neil would not take part in any of the front-facing activities. Getty and Alex would be sort of the face of the band. So press junkets, interviews, meet and greets would all be the two of them. So Neil decided at this point that while on tour, he's going to take his motorcycle out. And he did something that I thought was very interesting and actually inspires another book that he writes. So Neil would basically pack his bike on the road with them. And when they would finish a show, obviously he's not going to stick around. He goes to the bus, he goes to sleep. The bus leaves and drives a little bit overnight. They pull over the next morning at, say, a rest stop or whatever. And Neil gets off the bus, grabs his motorcycle, and goes, okay, we're going to Chicago. I'll meet you guys there. And just takes off on his bike. (laughs) Did this bother the band? We don't really know. And when asked if he was ever late, Neil proudly points out that he never, ever was late to a show. And if he wasn't an hour early, he was late. He said there were a few challenging moments, one of which was during a national park tour he decided to do when touring the East Coast of the U.S. He actually wanted to get the stamps because he gets stamps. So he drove through like three or four national parks on his way to New York. And it was raining. And he said he was sitting there in traffic and he thought it was one of the dumbest challenges he ever came up with. Was he on the 95? He was on 95. Oh, I hate the 95 so much. But he got to the show on time, and he played the show. Good for him. Uh, He also said, and I thought this was funny, he would ride with a buddy or a couple of guys, so if anything happened to his bike, he just would borrow theirs and take off. (laughs) He's like, yep, got it. I got a a thing I got to do, so uh, you figure this out, right? It's kind of funny. Triple A. So, and that was actually a part from the R30 tour, which is, we'll get to that, that is the 30th anniversary tour of Rush, 30 years. 
So remember the analogy of the vapor trails mm-hmm. that expired, that inspired the album released in 2002, Rush's 17th studio album. Guys, come on. 17th 17? album called Vapor Trails. And a lot of this was inspired by Neil's writing while he was traveling the U.S., during which time he said he saw two of a lot of things, signs for fireworks and signs for churches. Yeah, no, that's accurate. That is that is very, very accurate. I'm pretty sure he saw the Pedro Says signs. Oh, um, yeah, when he's going to south of the border, I bet. So a lot of people accuse this album, and putting that in little bunny ears because the critics say what they say, not everyone agrees, that the album was either religious or political, and Rush really thought it was neither. Again, I talked earlier about Getty, Lee, Getty Lee's religious or lack thereof beliefs. Neil said he subscribed only to one church, and that is the Church of Worry. <laughs> he said he would worry about things so much that they wouldn't happen. And if they happened, he clearly didn't worry enough. I, I think that you need to take a little advice from Mr. Neil. I'm, I'm going to read his books. That's, I think, the best way to get into his mind. And also, he is a self-proclaimed linear thinking agnostic, but not an atheist. So he has a lot of spirituality. I just, I think he's also a guy that asks a lot of questions. So the song I'm going to share with you is from Vapor Trails. This comes out in 2002. I'm going with, of course, the opening track, because once again, Rush sure knows how to open an album. And please take note of the drums on this one. Again, the work Neil does here at this point in his career is nothing less than exceptional. Here is One Little Victory from Vapor Trails.
again, just crazy drum work on that. It's absolutely incredible to think at that point in his career that's he's still got that ferocity. This is going to be, bear in mind, their 30th anniversary. The band would release a commemorative DVD set called R30, and this also inspired more books from Neil. He wrote Traveling Music, the soundtrack to my life and times in 2004, Roadshow Landscape with Drums, a concert tour by motorcycle in 2006. And this was my favorite because he actually did an interview for this book on VH1 Classics with, do you remember Eddie Trunk? Yes. He did an interview with Eddie Trunk. And Eddie was clearly trying to compose himself the whole time until the end when clearly the wheels and the fanboy came out. (laughs) Um, It gets to the end and you can tell he's kind of like nervous about this. And Eddie Trunk looks at Neil and he says, well, I do have one last thing to ask you. And he takes out a copy of Presto from 1989 and it's signed by Getty and Alex. And he said, would you do the honors of signing this? And he took out a little can of Sharpies and his hand is quivering and Neil just says, what color? And he signed it. That's so. That's really sweet. He was great to his fans. He puts out a second instructional DVD in 2005 called The Anatomy of a Drum Solo, where he describes his conflicting personalities of being a compositional and improvisational drummer, stating that every song that they played live, his solos were built around a basic framework, and he would sometimes deviate from that, but really he knew what he was going to play, which is even more impressive. So really, you kind of got the, the grab bag. It could have been... Oh, yeah the standard that's on the album or it could have been something completely improvised or so you never knew what you were going to get but you were going to love it i kind of dig that i know it's awesome in 2007 rush would release their penultimate album snakes and arrows this was of course accompanied by (laughs) more touring i like that it's almost like slings and arrows that's what they're going for yeah and the album cover is really funny too they're nerds oh they totally were and it's awesome He still takes lessons. He coaches with Peter Erskine. And actually, when he wasn't touring, he did some collaborations with the band Vertical Horizon. What? You're a god. Uh Yes. Oh, my gosh. He's everything you want. Yes. That drum work is Neil Peart. Wow. Yeah. That's okay. That's almost as surprising as finding out that Eddie Van Halen did the guitar part on Eat It. And in 2009, Neil would become a father again. His wife, mm-hmm. Carrie, gave birth to their only daughter, Olivia. Rush is back in the studio, and he's working hard. They planned to release an album, which would be their final album, called Clockwork Angels. And the goal was to release songs digitally, tour, and then release the whole album. So kind of an innovative approach. That is interesting. And that time frame is 2010 to 2012. And of course, Neil writes another book, Far and Away a Prize Every Time. Because he doesn't have enough to do. Exactly. He's like, I'm going to write another book. And that same year, they're honored with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. The star was placed on June 25th in front of the Musicians Institute, which is appropriate. Yeah. Rush was there. And to commemorate the occasion, they invited DJ Donna Halpern. See, I love that. Yeah, they're just good guys. That that the appreciation has gone on for 40 years. <laughs> and there's the photos of them with Donna in front of the star. It's really amazing. That's incredible. Clockwork Angels is released in 2012. And in many ways, it was sort of a mixture of everything Rush offered up to this point. You had the fantasy elements. You had the epics. You have a very weird song called Caravan, which has calliope music in the beginning. Nope, I'm out. It, it's, it's a bizarre <laughs> album, but it's I'm actually sorry, very the nice. calliope is the worst instrument other than the recorder. 
And that was June of 2012. That same year, Rush finally gets inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They were eligible in 1998. So that goes back to the question you asked me earlier, LD. 98, they were eligible. They make it in 2012. They're asked to perform, and of course, they're brought on stage with a number of musicians, including, I believe, one of your favorites, Dave Grohl. You know, <laughs> it's funny because I I love Dave Grohl in Foo Fighters, <laughs> and I love Dave Grohl as a human being. Oh, he's fantastic! Even more, he's just a cool guy. I mean, for, for the fact that he rickrolled the <laughs> Westboro Baptist Church. That's right. I'm sorry, that was. Brilliant! Didn't he have the carry ice bucket challenge? Too? He had the carry ice bucket mm-hmm. challenge. He just, just awesome, awesome. Well, when asked about the occasion, he said that playing with Neil Peart was unmistakably the greatest moment of his life. Again, a drummer's drummer. So around 2015 is where people start to pick up signs that Rush may be getting into their, you know, the twilight of their career. Neil does an interview with Drumhead Magazine in which he says, again, so eloquently, Now, after 50 years of devotion to hitting things with sticks, I feel proud, grateful, and satisfied. The reality is that my style of drumming is largely an athletic undertaking, and it does not pain me to realize, like all athletes, there comes a time to take yourself out of the game. Now, if you read that out of context, would you say, a drummer wrote that? No. (laughs) No, not at all. Uh, Lifeson was actually suffering from arthritis at this point, and Neil said he was battling tendonitis. So, but think about how old they are, too, at this point. They're not young <laughs> men anymore. Needless to say, they're going to get it together one last time, and that is in 2015 when Rush embarks on their 40th anniversary tour. How crazy is that? It doesn't, doesn't happen a lot. No, not many bands reach that mark. It was a tour of 34 cities, basically in North America. The last performance took place at the L.A. Forum on August 1st, 2015. Now, at this point, both Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson said that Neil was going to take a break. They said that Rush was still together, that they're not disbanding, but Neil's going to take a year off, which may have been foreshadowing what unfortunately comes next. In September of 2016, Neil releases a book, Far and Wide, Bring That Horizon to Me, which in hindsight now seems like Neil's kind of farewell letter to Rush, his fans, and his family. The details of what comes next aren't entirely clear because TJ mentioned this last time, we as the public found out about Neil's passing essentially after the fact. It wasn't when it first happened. Which is crazy with social media and, you know, how fast news moves now yeah and i think it's due and i'll get to this in a minute in large part to how protective those close to neil were of his privacy and his request to keep things you know on the dl so here's a rough sketch of the timeline from really 2016 into 2020 at some point between 2016 and 2017 neil is diagnosed with cancer and it's not just any cancer the cancer is called a glioblastoma which is highly aggressive and attacks the brain. Jeez. It is a cancer that there are treatments for, but there is still is no known cure. So basically it's just making you comfortable until you pass. Basically, yeah, there are surgeries you can get. You're just you're just waiting the clock out at this point. It was in 2016 that Alex Lifeson came forward and issued a statement that said we rush will most likely 
not tour again or release any new material. Over the next few years, there are several conflicting accounts of what Neil's status was. Some people said that they saw him. Some people said that he couldn't speak. Some said he couldn't move. Some people were in a wheelchair. And this is to the point I made earlier about those protecting his privacy. I think the the real ones you had to fight were Getty and Alex. Whenever somebody said something, they would come out and be like, no, that's not true. Uh, someone could have shown a tape of Neil in a wheelchair and they would have said, no, he was at my house. Well, I think it's just loyalty till the end. They're going to respect their their brother's privacy. That's that, what they that's called him. That's the thing. Yeah. Is it's, it's nobody's business what anybody is going through medically. And they just loved him and respected him so much that they wanted to protect him. And I get that. Yeah. And the fight went on for several years. But like we said, there is no cure for this cancer. On January 7th, 2020, we lose Neil Peart. He passed away in Santa Monica, survived by two of his families. The first were his immediate family, which included his parents, who outlived him, his siblings, his wife Carrie, and their daughter Olivia. And the second were his bandmates for life, Alex Lifeson and Getty Lee. Can 2020 suck any harder? Know, you know what? No, really? No, no, no. No, no, no. 2020 sucks. Still does, yes. This statement came out shortly after Peart's death, and it was released by Lee and Lifeson. They said that Neil lost an incredibly brave battle to cancer for the last few years. We ask that friends, fans, and the media alike understandably respect the family's need for privacy and peace during this extremely difficult and painful time. Those wishing to express their condolences can choose a cancer research group of charity of their choice and make a donation in Neil Peart's name. Rest in peace, brother. That, though, would not be the end of Neil Peart's legacy. Neil Peart and Rush won more awards than we can possibly talk about. Never a Grammy, but... That's the Grammy's loss. They won seven Juno Awards, which are in in Canada. (laughs) Neil himself was inducted into the Modern Drummer Hall of Fame. The band was added as Musicians of the Millennium by the Harvard Lampoon Association. See, and that is that is honestly one of the most impressive because that's a thousand years of drummers. Uh, yeah, and it gets better. The band members were named Officers of the Order of Canada, which is the highest civilian honor the Canadian government has. That's awesome. Canada's Walk of Fame has a star for them, just like the one here in the U.S. They were named the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. They were given the Lifetime Achievement Governor General's Award for Performing Arts, which is the highest artistic award someone in Canada can achieve. That's incredible. The list of influences is endless, but it is largely thought that they influence bands such as Alice in Chains, Anthrax, Dream Theater, Foo Fighters, Jane's Addiction, Metallica, No Doubt, The Pixies, Primus, Queensryche, Rage Against the Machine, Smashing Pumpkins, Soundgarden, and Trent Reznor's Nine Inch Nails declared Rush his favorite band of all time. Okay, two things. That's like your whole, that's just like a list of your childhood. It's a list of everybody. <laughs> and then Nine Inch Nails, congratulations to them for now being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this weekend. They so just got in, yeah. Just got in. Well done, Trent and the boys. Well done. Very nice. Stuart Copeland of the Police called Neil Peart the most air drummed two drummer of all time. How do you? <laughs> Which I love I'm sorry, that. How do I you... love that. How do you gauge that? <laughs> a lot of people do, you know. <laughs> and when he was asked in an interview about being an influential drummer, Neil, with just incredible humor and candor, would just laugh and say, tell their parents I'm sorry. <laughs> After Neil's passing, 
streams of Rush music went up by over 800%. Wow. Their sales digitally over 2,300%. So over 2,000% in sales. And who pays for music now? Rush fans. Um, The people who love Rush. (laughs) In fact, in the three days following Neil's death, album sales reached 6,000 units. Wow. Yeah, in three days. That's incredible. Now, I mentioned earlier that we were going to play a song, and we have to play it because the fans would go into open revolt if we didn't. Between January 10th, the day Neil passed, and January 13th, this song had over 2.8 million streams. It is ranked 19th out of 100 rock songs that VH1 has selected to be the greatest of all time. Now, before we go out with our, our farewells and this final song, I just want to remind you all that this song wasn't written by this savvy music producer. It wasn't written by a pop supergroup. It was written by a farm boy from Ontario who never went to college. Just think about that for a moment. And in closing, before we do our little sign off and play the anticipated song that we're going to, I just want to give a thank you to Neil Peart. Uh, thank you, Neil, for all the great work that you've done over the years. Thank you to your family for being so supportive. And thank you to Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson for being just stalwart band members. And really, they were brothers to him. And I just want to say thank you for all the great music. I am a fan. I hope this episode has op- opened LD's eyes a little bit. Yeah, I mean, and, it, uh, I, I, I'll be more open to listening to Rush music. I will. And the same goes for our audience. Again, some of you are Rush fans. Some of you fall into one of those three buckets we mentioned earlier. There's so much to explore. So much there. And again, we have just opened the door for you. The songs I played represent such a small slice of what Rush has to offer. I mean, much like our episodes, his life was so... I would say, you know, like most of our episodes, his life was so rich and so full and so just bursting at the seams with him doing things. We couldn't even mention the names of his books. He wrote seven, seven books. Because he had seven of them. We mentioned like two of them. There were 19 albums. He toured for like his whole life. There's there's so much. And so, of course, we might miss a few things, but, you know, it, they the story has opened my eyes. I think Neil is a, a shining example of a what Dan Cummins from the podcast mm-hmm. Time Suck would call a wonderful meat sack. <laughs> <laughs> he he just seemed like a great guy. Yeah. And that's undeniable. So even if, you know, I've never been really exposed to their songs, I never really sought them out, I will say I think that Neil Peart might be one of my favorite people that we've covered. That's great. And again, watch his interviews. He's so warm and intelligent and just, again, a great guy. Well, I think that this was a fantastic episode. Thank you so much, Will the Thrill. Thank you. Uh, Our social stuff, if you guys think that we're doing an awesome job and would like to contribute to the show, you can do so at patreon.com backslash rockandrollheaven. You can check us out on Twitter at rockandrolllt. Our Instagram is rockandrollheavenlt. Facebook, rockandrollheavenpod. Our website, still not going to say it. And you can email us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. And please, guys, absolutely feel free to reach out and talk to us have a discussion with us we love this kind of stuff and that's pretty much it for this episode please check us out next week when we will be talking about keith moon nice and i will give you a a a sorry that this episode is late but we did have those 
technical difficulties, and I'm just glad that we got through this one. And fingers crossed it will be posting up this Thursday. And thank you, Penelope, for the wonderful letter. We hope you enjoyed this episode. This one was largely for you. Thanks so much, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Have a wonderful week.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 